0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: It's Wednesday, June 30th, from the Recount and iHeartRadio. This is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis and interviews based on my newsletter, News items. My guest today is Sheila Smith, a senior fellow for Japan Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Hello, Sheila, and welcome to the podcast.
2: Hi, John. It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: I'd like to focus our conversation on three subjects. The first is the coronavirus, second is the upcoming Olympics, which obviously is of enormous interest around the world, and finally, the upcoming elections in Japan. But before we do that, I wanted to get a short sort of Japanese history lesson if I could. I worked at NBC News in the 1980s, and at the time, it seemed like Japan was ascendant in a way that, you know, had everybody in the United States completely freaked out. The Japanese automobile industry was crushing its U.S. competitors and the European competitors, for that matter. Sony was buying up motion picture studios and music publishers. Fuji was laying waste to Kodak, etc. Japan's economy grew 10% in the 60s, 5% in the 70s, 4% in the 80s. And it seemed to confirm that you know a highly targeted industrial policy was the model for economic success and ascendance. And then it all went sideways. Hmm. What happened?
2: Oh, I remember those years well, John. I was in grad school at the time at Columbia up in New York. And I I remember that the, the Japanese had arrived on American shores. You know, they bought emblematic buildings like the Rockefeller Center. They were the first economic superpower. Of course, we were in the United States, we had been in Cold War mode where it was us and the Soviet Union battling it out. And here comes this ally of the United States. Uh, don't don't forget that West Germany was not far behind here, but both are our, our allies. Once adversaries in World War II, but post-war allies They were cleaning up world markets, they were doing everything right, and we seem to be doing everything wrong, especially in the economic realm. And, you know, it's been a long time since that kind of Japanese triumphalism was part of the conversation in Tokyo. There's a whole generation of Japanese today who have never experienced that period of Japanese post-war history, right? If you're talking to people under their 40s in Japan today, they have not experienced that economic superpower Japan that went wrong, but they have experienced a Japan that has had significant economic setbacks, that has been overtaken by China, that has an aging population, that seems to have a lot of jobs but not necessarily good jobs. In other words, the the labor market in Japan is not as robust as many young people in Japan would like to see it be. So you've got a whole host of Japanese challenges, some of which come from simply being an advanced industrial economy, things that we can relate to here in the United States. Economic growth is harder, right, when you are at a certain place in economic development. Up and coming, newly developing countries like China or a whole host of countries across Asia, they have the demographics, they have the new industrial power, they also have the new innovative power, there's energy in their their future. We and Europe and Japan are facing this very different style economy. It's really important to understand that this is not simply about Japan, it's also about Europe and the United States and how advanced industrial economies Really garner economic growth and really shift gears to restructure yourself to be in a position where you can still innovate and get the benefit of that innovation dispersed throughout your economy. So Japan is struggling, but today there's an effort afoot, started by Prime Minister Abe, to really rework the policy mix. And, you know, because this Prime Minister Abe was the Prime Minister, it's referred to in shorthand as Abenomics. But it was really an attempt to bring different sorts of policy instruments to bear on this attempt to jumpstart the Japanese economy.
1: And what does that look like?
2: So Mr. Abe put forward three arrows in his quiver, right? The first is a not a new instrument whatsoever, but a, that is fiscal policy, right? The, the idea that the Japanese government can help stimulate economic productivity. Right. The other was quantitative easing. It was a monetary instrument that the Central Bank of Japan had been very reticent about using the monetary instrument, right, to create growth. And then the third was a, a whole series of structural reforms. So these are really where the rubber meets the road, to be quite honest, is whether the Japanese corporate sector, Japanese Agricultural sector, manufacturing sector, right, across the boards, financial services can really restructure themselves to take advantage uh, of where the global economy is rewarding productivity, right? It's not in the old school manufacturing anymore. And if it is, it's in an innovative area of manufacturing. But financial services, all kinds of globally available services, right? This is where the engine of growth is, especially for economies like ours, right, that are advanced mm-hmm. industrial economies. Right. So the structural reforms are hard because they have social implications. They're not driven by government. They're really driven largely by private sector adaptation.
1: ABE and Abenomics sort of works, doesn't work, mm. kind of works. How did How did that go?
2: Well... I am not an economist, and I'm not going to pretend to be, so I I just want to put that out there for your listeners. But there's quite a strenuous debate in Japan and outside Japan about how to evaluate Abenomics. And so I would say the positive takeaway is that Abe changed the popular perception in Japan of the future economic opportunity of the country. And that's what politicians do, right? right? Good politicians change the way we think about problems. They may not solve the problem, but Abe, you can certainly give Abe credit for that. Abe also oversaw the implementation of the second tranche of a sales tax or a consumption tax, which of Mm -hmm. course is what the Ministry of Finance wanted. They wanted to get more tax revenue to be able to carry the fiscal burden, to be able to do the kind of stimulus that, that that right. they've always done. So he oversaw that. It was politically bumpy, but he did it. Quantitative easing, they've gone from zero interest in, in playing that role to a you know huge embrace of that role. The structural reforms, of course, have been mixed. Uh, he did the, I think Abe and the LDP did a really good job on agricultural sectoral reform, which of course is where many of their voters come from. So that's a hard nut to crack. Uh, Abe also put uh, targets on women's participation in the economy. He called this, this is dubbed womenomics.
1: Big deal, right? It was a
2: big deal. And the numbers, you know, some people poo-poo the numbers. I think it's important to remember that this wasn't a gender equality policy. This was an economic policy. And I think in the first two years or maybe three years, um, don't quote me on that, but there was about a, a little under a million women uh, joined the workforce in full-on participation. So it wasn't inconsequential. The, the the butts of all this, though, are you know a large proportion of the Japanese workforce remains in uh, part-time or non-contracted work. Right. So they don't receive pensions. They don't receive medical benefits. They don't have stable participation in the economy. That's the structural problem for Japan going forward. And that's also what leads to massive discrepancy in wealth. So you're seeing that kind of discrepancy come back in an economy that had done a remarkable job of becoming wealthy without a large income gap. Now you see about 15% of the Japanese population are in poverty. right? And that is largely women. Many of them are single mothers, for example. So there's mm. some structural issues that need to be addressed so if you're going into the workplace in your 20s or 30s, some of you may get good jobs because the corporations are hiring, but many of you will be in this part-time or contractual labor market uh, without access to the kinds of benefits that really allow you to accrue household wealth over your lifetime. So I think the structural adjustments that Japan needs to make are really going to be whether or not Japan can go into full-on labor mobility or not. You know, Would the labor market being responsive to need, and right. the employers responding to the capacity of individuals, right? You know, remunerating them in ways that are competitive. So we're still working through the structural pieces, uh, and that's where a lot of people criticize. Abenomics is insufficient, but
1: so it's going along, and COVID hits. Yeah. Obviously, if you were in your twenties and you were, you know, looking for a job, it probably couldn't be. <sighs> A worse timing, I right. guess, than, than COVID hitting. But how did Japan react initially? And then how did it deal with the virus over the last year or 15 months or whatever?
2: Um, I think the first time we saw the pandemic impact Japan was when there was a cruise ship that couldn't dock anywhere. Right. The Diamond Princess, I think was its name. And Japan, you know, with the best of intentions, said, okay, come into Yokohama Harbor, we'll take you. And uh, I think at least one passenger, if not more than one, had tested positive for COVID. And and this was February or so of 2020. So this is still early before any of us really recognize where we are with the pandemic. We weren't even calling it a pandemic, right? And what happened was, of course, you had this cruise ship sitting in Yokohama Harbor, which, of course, Yokohama Harbor, for people who have not visited Japan, uh, is just south of Tokyo it's a very densely populated extension of metropolitan tokyo so this is not this is nothing to sneeze at and in hindsight of course it makes me hyperventilate about what could have been much worse right but there have been three states of emergency they've had fixed time periods uh, the latest one was imposed by prime minister suga mr abe's replacement they've allowed the governors like here in the united states and in europe they've allowed regional political leaders to make the call about when to request a state of emergency for each prefecture, which is the Japanese equivalent of a state in terms of an mm-hmm. administrative unit. So there's been a lot of input from local uh, leaders as well based on what's happening on the ground. And so different states of emergency applied to Tokyo and Osaka, the main metropolitan areas, and then, then extended out to different parts of Japan as those governors saw the need for it. It's not a draconian lockdown. You know, it is a please go home and stay there. Mm -hmm. And so, NHK, which is sort of the Japanese BBC, the public broadcasting, had cameras up. You know, because they're watching traffic coming off the main train stations. You know, every Japanese commuter uses a train, not not a car. Um, And they were tracking this over time, and they were showing you know twenty percent increase in people being out, thirty percent increase in people being out and about, despite the state of emergency. So as you get these successive statements by the prime minister to stay home, more and more Japanese were saying, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, you know, it wasn't a huge amount. It wasn't like the United States where people were saying, forget it. They were, you know, Japanese all wore masks. They had no trouble with masks. They had yeah, a little right. bit of a physical problem with social distancing because it's a very small country with a lot of people, but they understood that they needed to be careful and they needed to be considerate of the community's welfare, but they didn't really want to be kept at home. by the time we got to the spring and the numbers, of course, started to go up again and Japan's medical system came under stress again, much like ours in New York and some of these epicenters, Los Angeles, right, where we've had uh, incapacity, right, in terms of the emergency treatment of COVID. Uh, Japan has had that problem, too. It's revealed vulnerabilities in their medical system. It sounds a lot like us, right? Right. One thing for your listeners really important to understand is the caseload in Japan is so much less than ours. So as we think about Japan's management of COVID, there have been these political issues that sound very familiar to us. But in fact, the caseload has been maintained at a far, far lower level. All
1: right. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, but we'll be right back to talk more with Sheila Smith.
0: And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
1: Welcome back to News Items. Next month, we have a sort of foreign invasion of athletes (laughs) and broadcasters and advertisers and interested people. Right? Is Japan vaccinated to deal with this?
2: So the vaccination issue is one area where the Japanese public feels quite disgruntled. They feel disgruntled in the same way we feel disgruntled about the national policy management of the pandemic. They're fed up right, with having to live in this world that we live in now you know, I can't tell you how many people tell me how angry they are at their government. And these are people that you would probably imagine have voted for the government that's currently in power right, in Japan, right? right? They are not opposition radicals by any means, but so two things here factored into Japan's vaccination policy. The first is Japan didn't, well, several things, actually three, Japan didn't successfully develop its own. So there's right. that thing Number that they're, one. they're going to have to address later on about why not, because they have a vibrant pharmaceutical industry, but, but it wasn't able to be up to the task. Second, They have regulations in place that require that any kind of uh, testing of any new vaccination, right, clinical trials, need to be done on Japanese. Right. So they didn't accept the clinical trials that were done by Pfizer, Moderna, or J&J, but on other people, (laughs) that's a regulation that they're going to have to take a really hard look at in in terms of a crisis response mechanism, because to do another set of clinical trials on Pfizer, even though it had already been in use in the United States, it took another several weeks, at least, if not a month. So that delayed that. And then, of course, they came late to the game in negotiations with those who were producing, right? So it took a long time for Japan to get supply, And then it took more time to get it rolled out and available. And they've had their pitfalls, just like we have in the early days when our vaccination rollout was, you know, if you're like me, you were probably on the computer trying to find your CVS or your Walgreens or your something (laughs) to figure out where vaccinations were. And there were mixed messages on who was able to get it. Now you've got mass vaccination sites run by the self-defense force, Japan's military in Osaka and Tokyo. You've got pharmacies delivering to local clinics. You've got full-scale, hands-on Japanese rollout of vaccinations. Prime Minister Suga said that he wanted to be at a million per day by the end of June, and I think they're getting there. He expects every Japanese to be vaccinated by mid-October, late October. Um, Everybody who wants to be vaccinated and can be vaccinated. Um, The Olympics start July 23rd. And at first, the Japanese government said we're not allowing spectators Right, And they've just announced that they are going to allow a limited, of course, uh, safe number of Japanese to attend the Games.
1: 10,000, right?
2: Yeah. So they're kind of edging up to where they'd like to be, which is to have a successful Games that has all the bells and whistles of showing the world the Olympic story, as we always like to watch every summer and every winter. So they're hopeful. The government is hopeful that it will move forward without catastrophe or a super spreader event, but that's a variable. None of us can be really sure given the Delta variant and, you know, given India, you know, we we just, who knows what's coming next. It's very hard to be confident.
1: Yeah. The last two months or whatever, there have been numerous stories in the press about these officials saying we have to shut down the Olympics. We just need to delay them for a year. Others say, no, no, we can go forward. Is that political or is that just a different point of view regarding the danger, I guess?
2: So in a way, I think you're seeing certain experts doing their job. So Dr. Onmi, who is the head of the task force that's advising the prime minister on the public health, right? He has been very cautious about the Olympics, right? He's used different language along the way, but has basically indicated this is probably not very smart from a public health point of view. Right. not sure you have to be a medical doctor to say that, but, <laughs> but, but he has been restrained and he hasn't said, Suga, pull back, right? He hasn't done that,
3: mm-hmm. but
2: he has publicly stated that he is uncomfortable. And then you've had the IOC, which is not a Japanese voice in the mix, but nonetheless an important voice in the mix. The IOC vice chair said, we can go forward with the Olympics, even if there's a state of emergency, which made all of us do a double take, right? Right. Um, right. What? <laughs> Why is the <laughs> IOC of all people saying things like that? <laughs> um, and that occasioned a little bit of blowback against the IOC, to be quite honest.
1: Um, I can imagine.
2: Even the Olympic minister, herself an ath- former athlete, said, you know, the IOC has forced us into a corner. I don't know that that's exactly right, but they are at least mutually complicit, I think would be the right way to think about that. But she was saying they're not listening to the public views of the, of the Japanese people. That's the third pocket here. Um, public opinion has really trended critical. I think by the end of May, early June, you had about 73 or 74 percent of the Japanese people, according to the Nikkei which is the Wall Street Journal of Japan, um, say that that they should be either canceled or postponed, that they shouldn't be held this summer. It's a pretty big swath of opinion among a fairly sort of conventional, (laughs) you know, support the establishment constituency. So you've got real public skepticism and criticism of Suga. His approval rating has gone down to the low 30s and has really not come back up. Although I suspect, you know, depending on what newspaper poll you read, you'll get a slightly different number, but they are consistent over time and not coming back up. Um, So I think you're going to have to wait till vaccinations are more widely dispersed and people get access to them for that to move. But I think you've sort of gotten a little bit. We've got, I'm not sure if we're over the hump, but it hasn't gotten worse You've had some business leaders come out, and these are not people who are part of the Japan Business Federation, the old old guard, but some of the new, more entrepreneurial companies, like uh, their presidents, like Masayoshi Son of SoftBank, which Mm -hmm. is a telecommunications firm. He came out very quickly and said, this is crazy. Why would you have an event like this when you are in a state of emergency and and, and we don't know what the future is for the public health? So he came out. He was followed then by the president, Mr. Mikitani of Nakuten. Nakuten is the Japanese equivalent of Amazon. It's an online retailer. Again, younger uh, entrepreneurial figure in the business community. He followed suit. So, you know, you had the more traditional business elite saying, well, maybe we need a plan B just in case. Wouldn't it be better to move to the fall just in case? You know, so you had a little kind of cautious well, <laughs> um, but the reality is a lot of money has been invested. It's spent already, but the IOC role here is really important because it's the IOC that has the liability insurance on the Olympics. It's the IOC that negotiates the broadcasting. We all right. watch it on NBC globally. Right. I-, I don't know how many billions of dollars that is, but that it's at least it's in the billions of dollars, that's mm-hmm. broadcasting contract, So if you're going to default, then the IOC has considerable liability, as would the Japanese government, of course, vis-a-vis its own commercial stakeholders at home. And Japanese taxpayer dollars would be gone because, of course, everything's been spent getting ready, right? I think the real economic loss for Japan, of course, is the expectation, like every country that hosts an Olympics or every city in particular, Tokyo, no exception, is that there's long-term boosts and investments that are made to the infrastructure, to the facilities. And then there's the revenue to be garnered from people who come. So tourism right. and the spending in country, um, that celebration that goes, that economic you know, Explosion, piece, really, right? right? Yeah, explosion, right? If you do it right, not every city does it right. Brazil had a... <laughs> tough time london did better you know what i mean it's not always right. easy um right. but but you need people to come and spend money in the country and stay and tour and travel and participate and you know that's a big boom and that's really what abe was counting on a little bit for for his economic planning and that's not going to happen with no spectators no foreign spectators and no travel right. to japan the country shut down right you can't go so that's the pandemic reality they're going anyway all of us have our fingers crossed that there isn't some unimaginable, <laughs> horrible disaster. disaster on the right. virus front. I'm a little bit more positive than I today than I would have been if you and I had spoken two or three weeks ago. I'm a little bit more, hmm, they may have the containment piece in a little, slightly better position than it looked uh, a few weeks ago, right. i.e. vaccinations, protocols, things like that. But, you know, we're going to have to hold our breath.
1: You know, the the line about NBC is they're going to uh, cover the Olympics if they have to kill every last person in Japan. <laughs> 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 the economic interests to keep yeah. the show on the road are yeah. just enormous. Yeah. So all of this, what, by the middle of August, um, we'll have, I guess, the first polls to tell us what impact the Olympics had on the upcoming elections, which I believe in October. Tell us about the politics of of the upcoming campaign.
2: This is a big election. You know Abe's been in power since December 2012, right. uh, and he stepped down last August. And Suga is filling out his last year of his term as president of his party, which means he's then voted in as the prime minister of Japan. So Suga has had a one year tenure technically, mm-hmm. and so two things are important here. Under Abe, the LDP and a a smaller party in coalition had a supermajority. They had a two-thirds majority in the lower house, which means if carefully managed, they could pretty much legislate any policy they wanted. And my guess is, my instinct is, um, it's likely that supermajority could have a dent in it by the time we get out, even under the best of circumstances, right? Mm -hmm. There's an opposition party that has coalesced, that has a little bit of bounce, it's a centrist left party. They're not going to take over government, but they may be able to pick up enough seats to take that supermajority away. So that's one piece. And then the other piece is whether or not the public is going to forgive Suga. Um, Abe's approval rating plummeted because of COVID too. Uh, Suga has had the hard task of carrying on the kind of Abe policy agenda and having the worst of it, right? He had right, to carry, right. the, carry the flag, so to speak, through the Olympics. So Suga is not only the party, but Suga himself could bear the brunt of any dissatisfaction that the public could have. So you could still have the LDP win, but not win enough to have the party confident that Suga should lead coming out of it. It's a tough election for the Prime Minister of Japan in these two different ways. It's the big post Abe defining election and it's also just the cleanup on the COVID and the Olympics. It's just a hard place to be. So we'll see, we'll see what the Japanese public think when they get to the polls.
1: Actually, it's a good place to stop and I look forward to talking to you
2: (laughs) after (laughs) the Olympics
1: (laughs) and after the elections you can can tell.
3: Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.
2: I can tell you what I was wrong on.
1: Tell, well, <laughs> it doesn't sound to me like you're going to be wrong. But uh, but anyway... Um, yeah. Thank you, Sheila, very much for joining us for the podcast today.
2: My pleasure, John. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for tuning in to the News Items podcast. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre bien Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby, and our recording engineer was the great Billy Gardella.